Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on select Fridays in May, each film touches upon artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, kicking off with Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro on May 10th at NortonSimon.org. You have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from Alleist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes, too, when you donate now at laist.com slash sweeps. It's Air Talk here on LAS 89.3, LAist.com, the LAist app, and live streaming on Instagram at LAist Official, where you can join the conversation and see inside the great Studio A. I'm Austin Cross, joining you, as always, for another fantastic Friday. Thanks so much for being with us today. Larry's back with Film Week next hour. In just a few minutes, we're going to talk energy vampires and how to spot them in your life. But we start today with the number 520 million. That's how much the IRS commissioner says his department has managed to claw back from multimillionaires since the department received an influx of cash courtesy of the Inflation Reduction Act back in 2022. Now, we learned about the first 160 million of that back in October, so an additional 360 million has been collected since. That got us to wondering here on Air Talk. Just how do you catch a high-level tax cheat? With us to discuss, John Choi, professor of law specializing in tax and AI at USC. John, thanks so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Well, just let's start with your first reactions to this number. It's been a relatively short period of time since the Inflation Reduction Act was approved, and it's been a couple months since the IRS announced that they were going to hire about 3,700 uh, new people in large part to help track down high-level tax cheats. But what are your reactions to hearing this today? This is just the first step, and I think we should expect to see much more revenue along these lines collected in the following years, but it's a good sign. There's general consensus among tax scholars that the IRS has been significantly underfunded for many years, and the Inflation Reduction Act was a positive step toward fixing that. Yeah, the story does go back a number of years, go back to the Obama administration, a lot of concern on the part of Republicans at the time about uh, investigations into conservative uh, causes. That's only added to uh, a certain level of political disdain uh, for the IRS. But does this really speak to just the power that's necessary to go after the bigger fish? Because I know in, in the past decade or so, when they didn't have a whole lot of funding, they were usually going after more low-income earners. Absolutely. Some of the easiest audits to conduct are audits of earned income tax credit recipients. Uh, and the IRS, when its resources were limited, was forced to focus on these kinds of lower level audits. Because audits of rich taxpayers are more complicated and you need more specialist audit examiners to conduct them. So in addition to raising money and being efficient and improving incentives, there's also a positive distributional benefit of funding the IRS, which is that you you can afford to go after the big fish instead of focusing on people who are already poor. It's Air Talk here on LAS 89.3, talking right now with Professor John Choi, professor of law specializing in tax and AI at USC. I understand the IRS, compared to the rest of the federal government, has been rapidly evolving as far as the technology that they use 
to help track down where people might uh, be kind of holding back their money. Can you talk to us a little bit about the technology that we're seeing come out just in the past few years? So the government is not well known for being at the forefront of new technologies, but the IRS has made really impressive moves. For example, it's partnered with private companies to expand audit information beyond just what's in your tax return. Uh, the audit mechanisms are all secret, but there are indications that they can look at your social media posts, oh. your bank records, text messages, all sorts of things to flag who is evading taxes. And so when you're talking about social media posts, is there some AI that says this person is driving a Bugatti, maybe look at them? Is that what it's, is it identifying maybe the objects that people are with or the locations where they're flying? Or maybe is it all of the above? Is it a secret? It's a secret, but uh, you have the right idea that, you know, if you're driving a Ferrari and claiming zero dollars of income, the IRS says, well, maybe something funny is going on. That's just a part of the audit technology and maybe a small part. But these are the kinds of moves that the IRS is making. This actually leads me to just a broader question of where people are hiding money, how people are hiding money, because as you've said now, it can be complicated. There's also different relationships, partnerships, corporations, sort of setups that people can have. So to give us an understanding of what IRS agents, auditors are up against, can you just tell us how are people hiding money these days? The ultra-rich often hide money through overseas tax shelters. Um, that is getting increasingly difficult through reporting requirements. Frankly, the hardest thing to audit and one of the most ubiquitous things is non-farm small business cash income. So <laughs> if you're running, say, a bakery and you're getting paid in cash, it's very difficult for the IRS to audit that. So there's a lot of evasion. I know that part of how President Biden got the Inflation Reduction Act passed and how he got this funding for the IRS was by saying, I believe, along with the IRS commissioner, that they would not target uh, people who make a household income of under $400,000 a year. That very well may be your average mom and pop bakery or a cash business or something like that. Is it that they know that there's likely some cheating happening on some level here, but it's not worth their efforts or time to go after those as much as it is to go after the bigger fish? So I don't uh, want to give the wrong impression here. What are described as small businesses often include businesses that make more than $400,000 a year. Okay. You can be quite rich and still run what is technically a small business mm. in the IRS's eyes. And a lot of these high-income taxpayers, there are other kinds of businesses like this, um, run you know, franchises, for example. Um, there are lots of opportunities for evasion. And you're right that politically, one of the most important uh, promises that was made was that audits wouldn't be increased on lower income taxpayers. And just efficiency wise, there's a much higher return on investment by auditing high income taxpayers. So it's just and it's efficient. I mean, before they got the funding, were they just looking at potentially suspicious filings and thinking, well, I, I wish I could go after this, but you know, we just don't have the manpower to go after this to dig into multi-level corporations maybe. Um, where the taxes are being dispersed on several levels. Yes, exactly. Uh, from 20. 
2010 to 2019, IRS funding had declined by almost 20%. Personnel had declined similarly. We knew people were evading taxes, but because of the political backlash against the IRS, in part because of the Tea Party auditing scandal that you mm. mentioned, uh, they had been systematically underfunded for a long time. This may be the question that leads to a thousand answers, or maybe it's hard to even boil it down into a top one, but why do people tax cheat, especially on these high levels? What is it that they're thinking? They don't like how their taxes are being spent, or is it because they can and so they do? That's, yeah, as you say, that's a really big question. I think especially at high levels, it's because people think that they can get away with it and you don't become rich by not taking every opportunity. And in addition, there can be a sense that other people are cheating too, so I might as well cheat. Um, and that you would, in, in some senses, be the sucker if you didn't oh. take advantage of opportunities to cheat. That's the sense that you get in some corners. Talking right now with John Choi, professor of law specializing in tax and AI at USC. Can you talk me through how it might go, say, within the IRS? Um, you're, you're looking through these filings. Something seems suspicious. What's the process? Let's say in this case, somebody is, in this hypothetical, somebody is holding back money. How do you go about determining that? What's kind of the, the operating procedure there? So a lot of the audit selection mechanisms are secret. The general process is that there is a computer program that will identify taxpayers who are likely to be cheating on their taxes, and an audit examiner will send a letter to the taxpayer requesting additional information. And if the information is unsatisfactory, then you go to a full audit. And then folks who have been audited before will know this is a relatively painful process. You have to give a lot of documents. You have to answer a lot of questions. And if you were cheating, eventually, typically you'll come to some sort of settlement with the IRS where you agree to pay your back taxes. I mean, is there a threat of, at what level is there a threat of maybe jail time or something like that? It's pretty uncommon to go to jail because you didn't pay your taxes. It has to be relatively egregious. But if you intentionally decide not to pay your taxes, even though you know you owe them, um, you can go to jail. Uh, it's, it's pretty uncommon. I mean, even people who are cheating on their taxes, they don't want to go to jail. Um, so often they can get away with just paying interest and penalties. Is there a, I guess I'm, I'm wondering, is there a sort of situation where, um, you know, a, a wealthy person, they have their money overseas, you maybe have to work with an overseas bank. I do recall that there was a huge scandal with, I believe it was a Swiss bank a number of years ago that said, oh, we don't have any, we're not hiding any American money. And then it turned out that they were hiding American money. How much cooperation does this take on an international level? used to be a huge problem. So it used to be that rich people would hide their money in Swiss banks. The Swiss government had bank secrecy laws. They wouldn't allow the information to be leaked. Nowadays, uh, in part because, as you say, uh, the big Swiss banks had big settlements with the U.S. government. The big Swiss banks now have a lot of operations in America. They don't want those assets to be seized. Nowadays, there are laws that require international banks even if there's almost no connection to America, to send information to the American government about the kinds of people who are holding money there. So it's become much less common for Americans to try and shelter money abroad like that. But we know from 
leaks of bank records that there were a lot of Americans who stored their money abroad before. It's just much harder now. I've read now that a big place where people are putting them is in uh, LLCs that you can form in certain states where there's less scrutiny, like a Wyoming or a Delaware. Yes. Um, we have a question actually from one of our listeners. Dennis in Alhambra wrote in and said, I read Speaker Johnson is proposing to cut IRS funding aggressively. Can the guest explain what's proposed and how those cuts might affect IRS collection efforts that are being discussed? There is something on the table right now about clawing back quite a lot of money. Are you familiar with it, Professor Choi? Professor Choi, are you still with us? I'm sorry, I was muted. Uh, yes, this is a plan to reverse some of the funding in the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, the Inflation Reduction Act earmarked $80 billion over 10 years, and $20 billion or more is planned to be um, taken back from that pot. So that would mostly involve a reduction in enforcement because that was the lion's share of the money that was earmarked for the IRS. What that means is that there would be less modernization, less capacity for the IRS to conduct audits, dimension to this. Generally, Republicans want fewer audits. Democrats want more audits, especially of the very rich. Um, but I think there's relative consensus among tax scholars that more money for the IRS is a good thing. The return on investment can be huge. You're cutting out there, Professor, but to your point uh, about you know, Republicans having shown themselves to be generally against extra funding for the IRS uh, after the IRS just got you know, money from the Inflation Reduction Act, Ted Cruz, Senator Ted Cruz said, imagine IRS agents descending upon America like a swarm of locusts. Uh, so there's a lot of fear mongering around a uh, potentially beefed up, well-staffed IRS. Uh, if this funding is in fact cut from the IRS, I'm seeing from the commissioner that it will, uh, they'll be able to continue on for a few more years maybe before uh, it becomes a major problem and they have to start scaling back. Is that what you're seeing as well, or would you see an immediate scale back of capabilities? The IRS is in a scaling up phase as a result of the additional IRA funding uh, from the Inflation Reduction Act. So they would be unable to scale up and eventually they would have to scale back. It would be a big blow to tax enforcement efforts for sure. As we go forward, as these enforcement efforts continue, obviously the number that we have in front of us today, uh, $520 million, that's $160 million that was revealed back in October, uh, then another three sixty that was just revealed to us today. Does this help at all, the IRS case, to say, hey, this is what happens when you fund us. We go after the big guys that, for the most part, aren't you, <laughs> aren't most of you, you know, normal right. people living life. Um, this is why this is a good thing. There's all sorts of evidence that there's a really good return on investment when the IRS spends more money on enforcement. For high-income taxpayers, it's there's evidence that you get more than $12 back for every dollar you spend on enforcement. And there are all sorts of collateral benefits. It reduces inflation. You're getting the money from people who have cheated on their taxes rather than raising additional tax revenue by um, imposing additional burdens on everyone. There are all sorts of reasons to believe that this is a good thing. Can I just ask, because I'm looking at the numbers, though, $80 billion is what they got from that Inflation Reduction Act over the next 10 years. Um, and then we're looking at $500, $520 million right now. Is the thought that the amount that's being given to the IRS, they'll eventually claw back more than what's being given to the IRS? 
Yes, two points here. One is that they're just getting started and they will eventually claw back more. So when you hire someone, you have to onboard them as an IRS audit agent. It takes years for them really to get started. So we haven't seen the full benefits yet. The second point is that the lion's share of the benefit of conducting an audit is not just the direct recovery of money in that audit. It's the fact that the person you audit for years afterward will cheat less on their taxes. And in addition, they will tell their friends they got audited. There'll be a general deterrent effect on tax mm. evasion as a result of the audit. So in fact, most of the benefit of audits is collateral. Although the audits more than pay for themselves directly, most of the benefit is secondary. That's John Choi, professor of law specializing in tax and AI at USC. We've been talking about the $520 million uh, mentioned by the IRS today that they have managed to claw back from multimillionaire households. Professor Choi, thank you so much for coming on with us today. Thank you. This was a great discussion. This is AirTalk on a Friday. I'm Austin Cross. Thank you so much for being with us. We are on air and we are live streaming on Instagram at LAS Official. When we come back, we are going to talk about energy vampires who certainly have a way of draining the life from you. Of course, I want to hear about potential energy vampires in your life. Maybe how you've dealt with that too. That's coming up. 60 seconds. Stick around. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Mix Mix, the Filipino Adventures of a German-Jewish Boy by Boney B. Alvarez. Inspired by true events from the life of Ralph Price, after escaping Nazi Germany, a newfound tropical refuge in the Philippines is upended when Japan invades the islands. On stage through June 16th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Air Talk here on LAS 89.3. Austin Cross with you. So nice to be with you on this Friday morning. We're also live streaming on Instagram right now at LAS Official, where you will certainly want to be when we do our Food Friday toward the end of the show, about oh, 20 or so minutes from now. We're doing sandwiches, and I'm talking to the guy who tried 100 sandwiches in the SoCal area, which... Nice work if you can get it, right? But he's going to share two with us, and we're going to share them together. <laughs> LAist official, LAIST official, where you can watch that on Instagram as well. But right now, we are talking about energy vampires. They don't suck your blood, but they can definitely drain the life out of you. Think coworkers, friends, family members. Yeah, it's pretty exhausting. So today we want to talk about how to spot an energy vampire, how to deal with those taxing relationships that aren't easy to cut off. And I want to hear from you, of course, if there's an energy vampire in your life, or maybe it's a past tense. Maybe there was an energy vampire in your life. And let me just kind of give you a sense of it's the person who's always coming to you with some issues, some, some drama. They're talking, talking, talking. Not a lot of air left in the room for you, though. 
If you needed something, they just maybe don't seem like they have the time. If you get what I'm saying, 866-893-5722 is the number. I also would ask maybe if you've realized that you're an energy vampire and you've maybe sought to try to change that. 866-893-5722 is our number. You can also email us, atcomments at com. Just be sure to include your name and your location. Joining us today to talk about energy vampires, how to ID them, Adrian Meyer, licensed psychologist here in Pasadena. Adrian, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Now, I kind of gave like a shoot from the hip definition of an energy vampire, but do you have a better definition of an energy vampire that might maybe even help people better understand who they are and, and what kind of role they play in our lives? I think you did a pretty good definition, but I would add that an energy vampire is someone who basically sucks the energy or the life out of you. Mm -hmm. So someone who drains your energy as opposed to rejuvenating you or giving you energy. Our producer, Matt, wrote in because I was talking about our, our call-in prompt, which is, you know, if there's an energy vampire in your life, you know, how, how have you dealt with that? And he says, I don't know if people are going to be willing uh, to uh, to out, to identify the energy vampire in their life. But uh, you can also be just a little bit vague. It can be a friend. It can be a family member if you do feel comfortable. But we would love to hear just how you've managed that situation or how you even knew when you were Encountering one, 866-893-5722 is the number. Uh, Adrian Meyer, psychologist here in Pasadena, is there any sort of narcissism connection to what we would consider, a person we'd consider to be an energy vampire? Well, when we think about narcissism, we're basically talking about someone with traits of being self-centered or focused more on themselves. So it wouldn't be uncommon for someone with narcissistic traits to be an energy vampire, to always be focused on them and never reciprocate in a relationship. But I would add that an energy vampire doesn't necessarily have to have narcissistic traits. Hopefully that should answer the question of the Ken Gregory on our uh, Instagram live channel right now who asked the difference between an energy vampire and a narcissist. So this is the point where I'm wondering if there are some questions that a person could ask to determine if there is an energy vampire in their life. And our producer, Lindsay, wrote in and had a really good way of putting it. She says, energy vampires to me are people who are just really negative. Like everything you say, they have a negative response. Everything's a problem. Those people, uh, those are the people that drain me. Uh, I'm sure people have encountered that, especially in the workplace as well. But what are some questions maybe to ask oneself uh, to, to determine, um, Adrian, if maybe they're dealing with an energy vampire? The best way to determine if we're dealing with an energy vampire is to basically reflect on how we feel when we interact with this person, when we spend time with this person. Is every time we see their name pop up on our phone, is there a feeling of dread or annoyance? Sort of getting in touch with our own feelings about the relationship and the dynamic will help us to suss out any energy vampires in our life. And I know that a lot of people maybe don't always think this, uh, but it occurred to me during our conversation last week uh, on AirTalk that sometimes as we talk about these issues or maybe you know challenges with people who have certain ways of living, 
uh, we do have to turn the mirror on ourselves as well to just make sure that we're not the problem. Are there any questions that one might ask themselves to see if they might be the energy vampire in their relationships? One important question we could ask ourselves is what type of relationship dynamic is this? Is this a reciprocal relationship? Are our conversations usually just focused on me? Do I leave space for them to talk about themselves or do I offer them help when they're in time of need? You know, trying to reflect on what we're offering and providing in a relationship and not just what we're getting. Talking right now with Adrian Meyer, licensed psychologist here in Pasadena, 866-893-5722. If you'd like to share your experience with your discovery of uh, an energy vampire in your life, there's also LAist official, LAIST official on Instagram where we are live streaming. Mark is calling us from Hermosa Beach. Mark, what's your experience look like? Hey, I'm Austin, and this is also for Adrian. My experience is I didn't realize I was a person who sought out those people until I joined a group, uh, Al-Anon, and the biggest thing I understood is some people who are energy vampires don't realize that that's who they are. Hmm. And you try and help people or you try and console people, but they can be people who are not willing, not ready to solve their own issues. But you can end up going down a kind of a negative loop of trying to help people who are not ready to help themselves. That's my comment. Thank you. Mark, thank you so much for giving us a call. 866-893-5722 if you'd like to share your experience with an energy vampire. Lena is calling us from Brentwood. Lena, tell us about your experience. Yeah, I recently had to uh, actually sever ties with a close friend who was in this category. He was in constant chaos. Mm. At first, when I first met him, it, I felt really bad for him. And I was like, oh, let me see if I can help this person troubleshoot. He's a nice guy. And then, like, he never got out of that spiral of chaos. And there were more factors than that. But it was just so exhausting. I mean, is there a short way to say, is there a moment when you uh, maybe realized, oh, I can't, I can't fix this. There's, there's no real solution to this. This is just a chaotic kind of human. Yeah. Uh, but I also had to really make this decision after I had a loss in the family and there was no empathy around that. And it was really about mm. a stuff that was, in my opinion, just not as important, Right. you know? That's Lena and Brentwood. Lena, thanks so much for giving us a call. 866-893-5722 is the number. If you'd like to share your experience, what you learned about, how you learned about an energy vampire uh, in your life, 866-893-5722. Uh, the Ken Gregory on uh, LAS Official says, I believe I have an energy vampire in my family because she is the queen of deflection. I want to bring this to you, Adrian Meyer, uh, psychologist here in Pasadena. Uh, anything that you'd like to remark on based off of the calls that you've heard so far, or the uh, comments that we've had come in? Well, I would certainly agree that an energy vampire doesn't necessarily know or are aware that they themselves are the energy vampire. And a lot of people who tend to be caretaking often end up in these sort of unbalanced dynamics. But one of the ways to 
get out of it, like we're saying, is to have self-awareness about ourselves and the impact this dynamic's having on us. Because most people would prefer to try to help the other understand and mm-hmm. figure out what's going on. And unfortunately, they might not ever figure out that they're the energy vampire. So we have to prioritize ourselves. One of our commenters on LA's officials said Colin Robins, uh, Robinson from What We Do in the Shadows is a really good example of an energy vampire. And we actually had a whole clip of that, but we figured it might be a little bit too long to play. But yes, that was certainly something that we thought about as well. Our senior producer, Matt, writes in and, and says that he thinks you bring up uh, an interesting point in that um, he feels like many folks that fall into this category first appear as someone who might need help or might need fixing. But then as you try to fix them, maybe you realize they're not actually interested in addressing their underlying issues. They just want to wallow in self-pity. Would you say that that feels at all accurate, Adrian Meyer? It certainly can be accurate that the, the person isn't interested in working on themselves or even reflecting on how they're contributing to their own relationship problems. Jason is calling us from Hollywood. Jason, what's your story? Well, at the beginning of the pandemic, I moved in uh, to a new place with one of my dearest friends because we knew that no matter what our deal was with with each other, we would not kill each other. And that seemed very important. Mm. And what I realized after a while is that uh, this man can talk forever about the things that are going wrong in his life or or recant old stories. And I once tested it by coming home from work and just sitting down, and he came and sat down next to me and talked for 25 minutes straight without me responding in any way, like like not even not even any kind of a, a, a continuation sort of thing. And I've heard him from the other room talk to a stranger or talk over a stranger about his, you know, his, his difficulties in his life for a total of five hours. Um, the way that I've dealt with it, is that I just reflect on how valuable our friendship is to me. And, uh, you know, and, and I know that he uh, may not take agency and correct the things that are wrong in his life, and sometimes he just needs one load. And I just, I just try to remember all, all the love I have for this guy, and uh, then when I've hit my limit, I will say something innocuous like, oh, i got to go work on this thing, or i got to, I don't know, whatever. And then I'll just leave I'll just leave the room um, because you know it, it's exhausting but it's not worth uh, it's not worth damaging the friendship he's a great guy Jason and Hollywood thanks so much for giving us a call Paula in North Hollywood says I've experienced energy vampires at work the book psychic self oh sorry it moved my little screen moved here the psychic self-defense by Dion Fortune is a fantastic book for this I've used it to help me navigate these situations Terry and Glendale emailed and said I think I'm a magnet for them and I want to change this trait I know so many people uh, who do this. I've had to sever ties, but would like to stop attracting this in my life. And with about our minute left, Adrian Meyer, psychologist here in Pasadena, how does one create a pathway to healthier relationships in their life overall, uh, especially if you're a person who maybe feels like you attract that kind of relationship? Of course, I'm biased because I'm a psychologist, but one of the best ways to improve your relationships is to seek out your own personal growth and personal development through therapy or other means, because at the end of the day, we can't change other people. We can only work on ourselves. And by becoming aware of how we get stuck in these kinds of dynamics really is the best way to 
start to set boundaries and remove these types of um, relationships from our life. That's Adrian Meyer, licensed psychologist here in Pasadena, talking about energy vampires. Adrian Meyer, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for much, so much for having me. When we come back here on Air Talk, we are celebrating an anniversary of sorts of the barcode. You know, they've been along, been around as long as I've been alive, but soon they could go the way of the dodo. That's ahead. Ninety seconds. Air Talk. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis. Or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's AirTalk here on LAist 89.3 and live streaming on Instagram at LAist Official. There's also LAist.com, the LAist app. You can take us on the road with us wherever you are. The barcode turns 50 years old this year. Now, some folks might remember the days before the era of beep, beep, beep. Each price was rung up manually. Not only did that take a lot of time, it also took a lot of work. You know, you had to do inventory, you had to key in all those prices. And in so many ways, the barcode really changed the world. It made megastores possible. No longer were there just two kinds of mustard. There could be 20. And of course, they also transformed bigger things like supply chains. But the only constant in this life is change. And all that product variety that the barcode made possible could also be its undoing. Sahil Desai wrote about it in The Atlantic in a piece called The Barcode Engineered Its Own Downfall. Sahil is with us this morning. Sahil, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Well, so in the beginning, in the early days of the barcode, it wasn't clear that that was going to be the answer. But could you tell us a little bit about what the challenge was that shops were facing at the time and how they went about trying to find that solution? Yeah. So in the pre-barcode days, you know, every sort of product would need to be, you know, manually keyed in by a cashier. And especially in grocery stores where you have so many products, it was really quite an onerous job. You know, one thing I found uh, in my reporting is that a cashier who was really good at just keying in products quickly and accurately was so highly valued that there was something called the International Checker of the Year Award. <laughs> I love this. In which 50,000 people entered every year to win a trip to Hawaii in a mink scarf. So 
it was it was really highly sought after. And and even then, even if you did everything, you entered every product correctly and quickly. Even then, product uh, stores might not know all that much information about what's actually selling. You know, uh, you can put in the price, but you know, a can of Campbell's soup uh, might be three dollars, but it would look the same to them um, as a three dollar can of hamburger helper. So you know, it the barcode sort of totally changed things uh, by being able to quickly just pull up a particular item and its price. And they tried out several different. Uh, different type types of scannable uh, codes of sort before they arrived at the barcode. For folks who don't know, and I don't think I knew until I started reading about this actually, but can you tell us a little bit about how a barcode is read? What sort of information is stored in there? Totally. So a UPC barcode, which is the sort of zebra-striped one that is on every consumer product, basically it's a – it's – lines of black and white lines of, of varying degrees of thickness and what they do is when you when you point a laser or really any light at it um obviously you know the some of the light reflects back to the camera and and others and other light doesn't and what that does is it reads as zero and one on a computer and basically every digit in a UPC code so 12 digits is made up of actually a series of zero and ones on a computer. So even in the 1970s, they were able to create this technology that really quickly pulled up this 12-digit UPC code, which could then tell you exactly what an item was and then its price. I'm talking right now with Sahil Desai, who wrote about this in The Atlantic. It's titled The Barcode Engineered Its Own Downfall. And I found this so fascinating. I'm just sitting here listening to you, Sahil, like, oh, yeah, this is <laughs> this is why I listen to public radio right here. Um, can you give us a sense of how the retail industry changed after it was implemented on a wide scale? I understand it was first on a pack of gum, and then from a pack of gum, it went just about everywhere. Yeah, what's really interesting to me about the barcode is it was sort of only supposed to be for the grocery industry. You know, so it was a it was some grocery executives who came together to create this. And, you know, they really conceived it almost like, you know, maybe doctors think of stethoscopes as hmm. something for their industry and their industry alone. Huh. Um, and they really never envisioned a world in which every product in every sort of store would have this, this symbol on it. Um, but that is what happened because the barcode is, you know, so important for just tracking goods, you know, as they move through, uh, move through stores, right? It, it has let basically, you know, stores become much bigger because, you know, if you think about a Costco, for example, um, it's much easier to, to have so many tens or hundreds of thousands of items. If you don't need a cashier who has to manually key in information about that product, it has enabled, you know, many more, uh, types of products in every store as well. If you know more easily what is selling, it makes it much easier to actually, you know, just put more products on set on shelves and and just be able to move things around if you know what is selling and what isn't, right? Um, one thing that had really struck me in my reporting is going to you know just my local Whole Foods and, and remarking at how right. there was something like twenty three different kinds of mustard on the shelves. You know, there's when the barcode debuted, there was only something like 9,000 products at the average grocery store, which may sound like a lot. But, you know, if you go into any grocery store now, you're probably going to find 
30,000 to, to up to 60,000. So it's completely changed everything about shopping as we now know it. We're talking about the barcode, which turns 50 years old this year. The barcode, especially once computers were introduced, um, completely revolutionary. Obviously, they, they could tell you what was selling, uh, how quickly, uh, where it was selling. A lot of data could come from that. But now we're in an age where we kind of demand even more data from our codes. And the QR code has started to uh, enter the conversation a lot more. I know it's been out for a while. Um, and, and it kind of seemed like it was a bit of a flop at the beginning. We started using them a lot more post-pandemic uh, for menus and things like that. Does it seem like, as kind of you pointed out in your piece, the, the barcode is becoming a victim of its own success and maybe the QR code is starting to move in uh, where it's falling short? Yeah, that's exactly right. I think what has sort of struck me about the barcode is that even as it's 50 years old this year, literally nothing about the symbol itself has changed. You know, if you look at the first ever barcode that was scanned, it's a pack of a 67 cent pack of Wrigley's gum. Right. And the barcode on it looks, you know, exactly the same as the barcode I could find on any product today. But the, the issue with the barcode is that it's just very limited in what sort of data it can hold. Um, you know, it, it only pulls up a 12-digit number, which then just basically pulls up the price and the item itself. So, you know, a barcode can't really tell if, you know, a pack of Oreos uh, was manufactured last week or 10 years ago. Um, the UPC code for that same product would be the same. Whereas a QR code, you know, we all think of it as something that just, you know, we point our phones at and it pulls up a link, but it basically can just hold much more data. It can hold links, of course, but also just many more pieces of data, right? So with a QR code versus a barcode, you can incorporate information such as expiration dates, you know, where wow. a product was made, the particular batch information, which might be important for, you know, a recall or allergies or what have you. All of that is getting stuffed into this new QR code. So, Hill, I only have about 30 seconds left, but do you see a day when the QR code would maybe replace the barcode altogether? So the company that, it's a nonprofit actually that, you know, decides all of this, it's called GS1. And they're really looking to replace the, uh, the barcode with a QR code. But I think at this point, the barcode has reached a point where it will never die. You know, we will be seeing barcodes for the rest of our lives. And I, to me, that's the most beautiful thing is even after 50 years, the symbol is not going to go away. Barcodes will never die. Just multiply. That's Sahil Desai, Supervisory Senior Associate Editor at The Atlantic. His latest article is The Barcode Engineered Its Own Downfall. Sahil, thank you so much for coming out. This is so fascinating. Thanks for having me. It's Air Talk here on LAS 89.3. When we come back, it is Food Friday. We've got sandwiches. We're talking to the guy who's tried over 100 in the Southland. He is here in studio. We're going to have some sandwiches. Join us on air on Instagram, LAIST official back in 60 seconds. It's Air Talk here on LAist 89.3, and it's another Food Friday. Uh, we are on air. We are live streaming on Instagram right now at LAist Official. And today, I'm joined in the studio by a man who's been on a mission this last year to try 100 different sandwiches across LA. 
Not only that, but he has a ring to them. Luca Servodio, founder of the LA Countdown and host of the LA Food Podcast. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I, mean, I was just starting off our conversation when you came in asking how you managed to, to stay looking the way that you are, eating so much bread over the past year. You do marathons. I do. I, That's I, the I've, answer. <laughs> I've run several marathons, although I'll tell you what, there's not enough marathons in the world for the amount of sandwiches I ate last year. Oh my gosh. I hear you're doing noodles. Next. Noodles just kicked off the noodle countdown. So yeah, the, the carbs are staying carbing. <laughs> All aboard the carb train. Well, let's just start off with a little bit of your criteria that I'm going to dig into these two sandwiches uh, in front of me, which look absolutely incredible. But uh, I loved your criteria because it kind of combined, you know, wait time, but with a number of other factors. Can you tell us how, how you ranked all these sandwiches? By the way, your list on LAS.com right now. But Absolutely. So this was the first year I actually did ratings because I've done this before. In 2021, yeah. I ate pizzas. In 2022, I did taquerias. In 2023, I did sandwiches. And I figured this is the most apples to apples journey I've taken. So let's rate these things. So I came uh -huh. up with a rating system. And basically, 25% uh, uh, of the score was based on bread. 25% of the score was based on fillings. 25% of the score was based on construction, and the rest of the score was sort of based on the intangibles. Um, I graded it based on personal experience, meaning how, how does it actually feel to eat at this sandwich restaurant? Also, mm. how, how historic is this place in the context of Los Angeles sandwiches? And finally, there was just the personal satisfaction category, sort of acknowledging that this is all pretty subjective. Um, and, and I basically tried to measure this based on how long would I be willing to wait for this sandwich in line? And basically, the longer I would be willing to wait, the higher the score. What's the longest you ended up waiting? I think I waited for about an hour at Larchmont Wine and Cheese for their uh, number three salami sandwich. Wow. Yeah. So uh, I'm, uh, I'm have these two sandwiches in front of me, but to reintroduce you, talking right now with Luca Servodio, founder of the LA Countdown, host of the LA Food Podcast, who ranked 100 sandwiches or so on our website, laist.com. Uh, I'm going to go through these sandwiches right now and actually uh, try them, and, and maybe you can talk me through them. Uh, as I work my way through. But the first one, we'll go in order of meals since it's still morning time. Uh, there's Clark Street Bakery, Echo Park. Uh, they also have locations, Brentwood, Grand Central Market, Largemont. Uh, and the item before me right now is the, I'm going to open it up for people who like sound, the breakfast sandwich on toast, which sounds, you know, on paper, pretty simple. It's two eggs, bacon, Monterey Jack, lettuce, tomato, special sauce on a griddled kind of griddled to perfection country sourdough what do you like what do you love about this sandwich uh, you know what i loved about this sandwich was just as you said its simplicity so i i personally think that their bread is some of the best bread in the city and and bread plays a, a really important part in sandwiches also i just think every single ingredient is well thought out it's super well executed and honestly sometimes a sandwich just hits and this one hit. It's, it looks like it hits. I, I mean, the smell is incredible. And then you kind of hear, if you want to hear that, it's like the crisp, the crisp top. Everybody oh, loves yeah. a crisp top. Uh, I'm going to try a bite of this, but can you tell us uh, how it ranked on your, your list of 100? Absolutely. So this was probably the highest ranked breakfast sandwich. And I, I scored it an 89% out of 100 based on the strength of its bread and on the strength of its quality of ingredients. Um, also have a great experience every time you go to a Clark Street location. The vibes are always immaculate. Um, so that's why it got <laughs> such a high score. The vibes immaculate. 
uh, on our Instagram live right now, Braggy Shop says the bread looks excellent. The bread is absolutely fantastic. That is the thing that really puts it over the top. Yeah. When you think of sandwiches, because I'm the person who's been guilty. If I need a breakfast sandwich, I'd go to like Jack in the Box and get their ultimate breakfast <laughs> sandwich. But the bread. Oh my goodness, the bread, Luca. It's got that little tang of sourdough in it. But you know what? No shame in this in the Jack in the Box game, okay? No, 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 not at all. So that was the breakfast sandwich from Clark Street Bakery in Echo Park, also locations Brentwood, Grand Central Market, Larchmont. I can see why it ranked so high on your list. If I was around any of those areas, I had a hankering. That would hit the spot. Yeah, not to mention you can uh, chase it with some awesome pastries they make in-house, too. And, and a true L.A. story. You know, he started baking in his apartment, I want to say, in Los Angeles, selling loaves out of his apartment, and then finally opened brick and mortar. So a really cool success story. I have a good story where they start in the apartment. And also props to our producer, Lindsay, for running out early this morning. Uh, and grabbing this sandwich. It means so much. Our producers here at Airtalk go above and beyond to give you Food Friday. Our next sandwich, while we have time, is from Chechi's Gastronomia in Silver Lake. It is the Polpete Asulgo. Nailed it. In Focaccina. I've got wow. these pronouncers so in front like, of me. This is an Italian lesson right here. What, what that basically <laughs> means is just meatballs in sauce in focaccia. Ah, well, why didn't they just say so? Okay. Uh, and, I, and looking at this one, it's round. Yeah. And I've, I've had a meatball sandwich before, uh, a number of them. It's actually one of my favorite types of sandwiches. I've never had one that's come on a, a round piece of bread like uh, this. One of our commenters on Instagram right now, L-A-I-S-T official, says, when will these technologies bring smells of these sandwiches to us? Um, <laughs> let me just tell you, this, the smell is 10 out of 10. Uh, where did this rank on your sandwich list and why? Austin, this was sandwich number three number on my list. Three. So the bronze medal, they got a 94%. Now, what I love about this sandwich, so Chichi's Gastronomia is a wonderful little deli in Silver Lake. Its owners come from the region of Italy that is known for making focaccia. So oh. this is easily going to be some of the best focaccia you've maybe ever had and definitely some that you, of the best that you can find in the city. So that what that's what I think brings this sandwich over the top. The meatballs, you know, meatballs are, are can be hard to execute right. when you're making them so small for this type of sandwich. And I also think the meatballs here are spectacular. Honestly, everything Chichi's touches turns to gold. But this sandwich has a special place in my heart. Uh, and I'll just say it's topped with some burrata underneath it. It looks like there's arugula, which mm -hmm. I love arugula. It's uh, one of the the finest of the uh, of the salad varieties. Uh, I'm going to try this one. But um, tell us a little bit about the experience of just being there, trying this out. The uh, were the vibes as immaculate as the other <laughs> spot? Arguably even more immaculate. Look, the great thing about Chichi's is it it really delivers on the authentic Italian experience. And look, I'm from Italy, and I can tell mm. you, being at Chichi's is the closest I feel to getting mm. to Italy in Los Angeles because you just show up there, you order an espresso, you order a little pastry, you can order a sandwich, you can eat it at the counter or sit down. And it's a very sort of like casual but uh, uh, elegant mm. experience. And that honestly sums up what it's like to have lunch in Italy. And you know what? It wastes no space. Like, everything is flavor. Mm -hmm. It's not like, oh, this is just here. You know, it doesn't contribute. Like, it's a chorus. Everything sings together beautifully. Mm -hmm. um, gosh, it's so good. In our 30 seconds left, 
People are going out right now. They're thinking about what's for lunch, what am I going to eat this weekend? Uh, what's something people should keep in mind as they go out looking for a good sandwich? Oh, my God. I mean, honestly, just just eat what makes you happy, you know? I mean, to me, like, find a place that makes their own bread, that sources the right ingredients. And if you like it, that's the thing about food, right? If you like it, who am I to tell you it's wrong? Oh, my goodness. Thank you sir, so much, uh, Lucas Hervodio, for coming in today. His piece is on our website, laist.com, uh, where you can find a list of 100. You said you've done 107 sandwiches now? Uh, yeah, uh, and counting. And counting. And the list goes on 100 sandwiches on our website, laist.com. I'm Austin Cross. This is AirTalk. Thanks so much for joining me today. Film Week with Larry Mantle comes at you next. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Mix Mix, The Filipino Adventures of a German-Jewish Boy by Boney B. Alvarez. Inspired by true events from the life of Ralph Price, after escaping Nazi Germany, a newfound tropical refuge in the Philippines is upended when Japan invades the islands. On stage through June 16th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Film Week on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us as I'm joined by critics Leo Lowenstein and Manuel Betancourt. He's contributing editor at Film Quarterly, and we're going to talk about this week's new movies. Then later this hour, I talk with the writer-director of the film Past Lives, which has had so much great response from audiences and critics. But we begin with the new film of this week, the action thriller The Beekeeper, starring Jason Statham, David Ayers, directed from a screenplay written by Kurt Wimmer. Manuel, please start us on The Beekeeper. Where to start with The Beekeeper? Uh, this is a Jason Statham actioner, and is that basically tells you everything you need to know about this film. Um, I found it kind of um, boring and sort of very nonsensical, which maybe aren't valid critiques for a movie that depends on Statham muttering his lines and kicking ass and then muttering some other lines and then kicking more ass. But um, it really tries to drive home this metaphor that the title gives us because he's a beekeeper, but he was also a beekeeper, which is this code word for this like extra government secret organization where he was supposed to, as he says over and over again, protect the hive. And protect the hive means that he had to kill a bunch of people or, uh, you know, um, have targets or do all sorts of things that the CIA and the FBI couldn't or wouldn't be allowed to do. Um, and he has to take on all that training that he used to have in order to exact revenge on the death of his landlady slash neighbor uh, who commits suicide because of a phishing scam and they drain all of her money and so he goes after these bad men who run these call centers and he slowly 
kicks his way all the way to the top and truly, truly to the top. And, you know, but it is action sequence after action sequence of him just kicking ass. And at one point it just becomes very boring, and very dull, even if they're very efficiently choreographed. But to me, this was just um, kind of a dull. I was going to say there could be a lot of emotional fulfillment in seeing phishing <clears throat> scams, you know, uh, undone. But um, I think I think there there yeah, I think there should have been uh, a, a lot more fulfillment, <laughs> emotional fulfillment and satisfaction to to derive from that. But yeah, I mean, this was just what can I say? It was it it just felt like a missed not just a missed opportunity because you know you, Jason's Statham in, a, in an action movie. I mean, those two things are like peanut butter and jelly. But you know, I I think it felt um, so by the books and so kind of uninspired. I felt like the dialogue was very wooden and heavy from the very beginning and <laughs> stiff, and. The action sequences, while he does kick a lot of ass, they're so heavily over edited. You know, I I didn't really get a lot of satisfaction from watching him beat up these these bad guys. This whole notion of a secret black ops organization <laughs> that he was, you know, a member or you know one of the the best beekeepers. I guess there's a lot of other beekeepers, but uh, you know that it, it, I feel like that's. Things of that ilk have been explored before, and it would have been nice to see something that didn't just try to put out there the notion that, well, in the highest levels of power, there's corruption, and you know, we we find corruption everywhere, and it's all inter interrelated. I will say that Josh Hutcherson, as the kind of whiz kid mastermind Zuckerberg <laughs> guy, who's like. Uh, wheels around in his in his expansive offices on a skateboard, and is the guy who's in charge of these phishing scams is incredibly entertaining, and I don't think I've ever enjoyed him as much. And he was the one sort of bright spot in the movie. There's a few nice supporting turns by other people, but but Hutcherson was by far the 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 bright one. We're talking about the Beekeeper, the action thriller, rated R in white release. Mean Girls, the musical comedy, is out. Uh, it's in wide release, rated PG-13, directed by Samantha Jane and Arturo Perez Jr., uh, who are husband and wife uh, uh, filmmakers making their feature film directorial debuts. Tina Fey wrote the screenplay, and it's based on the musical adaptation that she did of the film Mean Girls. Leo, what did you think of this musical version? Well, I thoroughly enjoyed it Larry and you know I I do while I acknowledge that it was not quite as maybe cutting or incisive as the original 2004 version uh, that of course was inspired by the kind of sociological study of adolescence queen bees and wannabes by Rosamund Wiseman um, this is you know it's it's still really good there's some great performances some great singing Auli Cravalho Carvalho as uh, the um, the artistic best friend of uh, the lead character Katie is is delightful and Gowrie Rice is wonderful um, and particularly Renee Rapp who played the part of Regina the Queen Bee on Broadway does just such a good job here she has some numbers that will just sort of like you know kind of shake you up um, it, it's a it's a an appropriately fun, very colorful, very boisterous look at the dangerous politics and the downside of girl power in in high school. 
And I think it's, for the most part, brought really effectively to the screen with the nice use of fourth wall breaking moments, um, some uses of, you know, social social media references with, with phones and so forth, um, Instagram. Um, but I will say that in, two, in 2024, certain things like, you know, body shaming and, and certain derivative, certain slurs, homophobic slurs, you can't you can't get away with those. And so the film sort of dances around some of those things. And it, you know, for the most part, it still really works. Um, but it's it's definitely not quite as cutting as the original was. It was still very entertaining. We've had so many of these, haven't we, where there's been an original non-musical comedy film. It's been adapted to a stage musical. Then the stage musical is adapted to a film musical version. I mean, The Color what? Purple, of yeah, course, Color Purple just yeah. came out. Hairspray, actually. Yeah. Um, high uh, High Society was the musical version of the Philadelphia right. story. That's right. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, there's a number of films that were not musicals that were made into musicals. That's a whole other subcategory: Groundhog Day, Tootsie, uh, Bring It On, and so forth. Saved. Um, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of them, but it's it, in it, the musical really works in this case because you know with musicals you're you're sort of exploring thoughts in your head through dance and song, and that that works so well here in a high school setting. So it was just it was it was. We're nice. talking about the musical version of Mean Girls. What do you think, Manuel? Yeah, I also had a I had a great time. Um, Lael says it's very colorful. It's very pink. It's very it pink. It is very pink, mm-hmm. and it is a reminder that uh, Asina Fey has said often that one of the most that one of the scariest things in the world is a teenage girl and mm-hmm. that that is a sort of the cutthroat <laughs> world um, <laughs> and in that sense the, the musical delivers a lot of the jokes are recycled wholesale from from the film and sort of if you really enjoy it or know it by heart you'll either groan or laugh along um, but I had a great time and yeah Renee Rapp there's an entire that entire Halloween sequence in the movie musical that it feels like this is such a great use of cinematography and mm-hmm. lighting and choreography in particular, which is so dynamic that I had I had a great time. We're talking about Mean Girls. It's rated PG-13. It's in wide release. Uh, Chile's official entry for the upcoming Oscars is The Settlers. The Spanish title is Los Colonos. The film's directed by Felipe Galvez uh, Aberle in a directorial debut for him, and he co-wrote the screenplay. Mark Stanley, Alfredo Castro, Marcelo Alonso, and Benjamin Westfall are the stars of The Settlers. Manuel. It feels like such whiplash to talk about this after Mean Girls because this <laughs> is so such a dour, um, s- sweeping Western um, set at the turn of the 20th century uh, in Chile. And we're following this uh, mercenary, the settler, and this young um, indigenous, young mixed race um, Chilean at a time where Chile as a country is sort of still being shaped and it's obviously being shaped by colonial powers by settler powers um and it's being settled in that sense by a lot of violence so this is set against the sort of the indigenous genocide that ends up um setting up the stage for 20th century chilean history it is gorgeously shot um you know the andes look as inhospitable and as vast and as beautiful as they have ever been. Um, it's, of course, a movie about um, what it means to be a savage, who gets to decide who's a savage and who's a barbarian, and the barbarian ways in which uh, indigenous cultures have been really been 
um, wiped off the face of the earth in the name of church, in the name of capital, in the name of um, country. It is particularly um, sort of gripping and hard to watch at times, but I just, it's, uh, I was blown away by this movie. Yeah, it sounds tough to watch, though, in the scene, this very painful part of history unfold. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how's the acting in it, Manuel? The acting is great, and uh, a lot of it is, so much of it happens often um, without dialogue or in dialogue that's happening both in English and um, indigenous languages and Spanish. Um, and the actors across the board, um, there's really a raw authenticity that, you know, Galvez really um, brings out on his characters and those close-ups when they're like, you really get to see them sort of emote. Um, it's kind of thrilling to watch. We're talking about The Settlers. Again, it's Chile's entry for Best International Feature Consideration for the upcoming Oscars. The movie's unrated. You can see it at Lemley Royal Theater in West Los Angeles. Next for our Film Week critics, Driving Madeline, which is a French drama starring Lean Renault. Uh, the film is directed by Christian Carillon, and it's written by Siri Jelly, uh, what did you think, Lael, of Driving Madeline? This is a very sweet film. And uh, Larry, and along with Lean Renault, this uh, very esteemed French singer and performer is uh, the actor Danny Boone, who plays uh, the, a cab driver. He is uh, extremely cantankerous and grumpy. He looks prematurely aged. Um, you know, he's, at one point he says he's only, you know, 46, but he looks like he's about 62. And uh, he gets sent on a fair to pick up this woman who is going to be dropped off at a retirement home. And and it happens that the retirement community is way, way on the other side of Paris and off to the suburbs, basically. And he, at first, he doesn't even want to take the fare because it's so far. And he's, he's like, oh, I don't want to do that. You know, he embodies every every annoyed French cab driver I've ever met in my in my life. Um, but he he accepts the fare because he needs the money and his, he's got problems in his life. He picks her up. And, you know, she's very chatty. And she says, you know, how old do you think I am? And he says, oh, I don't know, 80. And she says, oh, you're such a charmer. I'm 92. And and that begins this sort of lovely kind of little friendship that forms over the course of a very long day. Of course, it's not the first time we've seen this. We've seen Driving Miss Daisy, I don't know, Green Book, Taxi Cab Confessions, Anytime, Night on Earth, Anytime there's a, a cab driver, collateral even, that's sort of different. But, <laughs> but you know, um, it's a formula we've seen before. And it's, you know, it's to its credit that it doesn't, re- it doesn't actually feel stale here because... Um, it has to. It's. I think it's the chemistry of these two actors, really, who pull it off so well. Boone is known mostly as a comedic actor, but he is so good as the gruff cab driver. I forgot that was him. And uh, little by little, she tells him stories about her life, which are shown in flashbacks. And those are sort of less compelling in some ways than the modern day scenes of driving through Paris and talking um, between them. But it's still, you know, it's still interesting because it, you know, this this woman who gets in a cab, you think her her life is just all so simple and and tidy. But there's all these things that have weighed upon her and and she sort of shares them in this therapy session sort of so to speak with the cab driver who eventually ends up sharing some things with her and i will say that you know while i was a little bit reluctant to to be 
charmed by its spells. By the end, I was totally sucked in, and I it left me crying on the floor. And wow. Yeah, so it was very, very sweet. Beautifully yeah. acted in a lovely view of Paris, which they actually did by filming in all different directions and different places, and then they and then they had the actors in a studio because Lean Reynaud is, is, you know, at 92, she's not going to be getting around. A lot. Uh, it, when you have a film like this that enables two gifted actors mm. who have chemistry to play off each other, it's kind of hard to beat, yeah. you know? It's, it's just, it's so sort of stripped down to the elements of acting, but can just be so powerful. That's right, Larry. And it makes you, it reminds you that it shouldn't be that hard to make a good movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All you need are great talents. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, Driving Madeline, uh, the French film starring Lean Renault and Danny Boone. The film's directed by uh, Christian Carillon. The film's unrated in French with English subtitles, and you can see it at Landmark's Sunset Theater in West Hollywood, the Landmark Pasadena Playhouse Complex, and Lemley's Town Center in Encino. Coming up... We'll hear about the Amazon streaming film Role Play, starring Kaylee Cuoco, as well as Lyft, an action comedy that's on Netflix. We'll continue with Film Week on LAS 89.3, back in a minute. It's Film Week on L.A. Estate 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. In just a few minutes, the writer-director of the acclaimed film Past Lives, Celine Song, will be with me and we'll be talking about her feature film debut. In fact, she hadn't made any film before she made this movie. She's a playwright and stage director. You'd never know it from past lives, and we'll get the story about it coming up a little later this hour. But in terms of new films, uh, arriving on Amazon Prime Video is Role Play. The action thriller stars Kaylee Cuoco and David Oyelowo with Bill Nye. Thomas Vincent directs Andrew Baldwin and Seth W. Owen wrote the screenplay. Manuel, what'd you think of role play? I did not care for this movie. This is a listless kind of action sort of comedy. So uh, Cuoco, who's perhaps best known for uh, The Big Bang Theory and The Flight Attendant, um, is playing a hit woman who leads a double life. So on the daily, she's you know caring for her kids. She has a loving husband. They have sort of a, a nice house. But sometimes when she goes on business trips, she goes on business trips to kill people. And that is how she makes her money. That's how she's been staying safe for the past few years. Uh, but, of course, something goes wrong when she and her husband decide to have sort of like a nice role play night out in a hotel in Manhattan. And someone spots her and then things unravel and she has to sort of um, find her way back into safety and keep her family safe and keep her um, sort of marriage together after this like big lie sort of blow ups on her in her face. Uh, it has a kind of Mr. and Mrs. Smith kind of vibe going to it. I can I can imagine this was maybe sort of in the pitch deck, but it is nowhere <laughs> near as smart, as funny, as chemistry laden as that uh, Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt film was. Instead, it just it's very talky for a film about mm. hitmen. Like there's a lot of just. Uh, standing in rooms talking i will say the early the there's an early scene with bill nye in a hotel 
that is just crackling because I think the Cuoco's comedic skills and nice sort of deadpan sort of mm. raw humor are kind of a great fit and mm-hmm. I wanted a little bit more of that and instead we get a lot of I need to get this wig and I need to kill this person and mm. to save my kids and it's just so listless and none of the action sequences move at a dynamic sort of pace and I was just I found myself really bored throughout even though I enjoy everyone involved yeah role play what you think yeah Lyle? pretty much the same I I uh I couldn't figure out what the problem with it was <laughs> but I thought it seems like it's sort of what I would call tonally dysfunctional like it didn't know what it wanted to be it was sort of going a little bit for this comedic tone but it wasn't edgy enough and didn't have a good enough script to be funny or, or you know, it wasn't directed um, sharply enough for that. And and it wasn't like, it, it didn't, the st- like, it just didn't, it never came to life. I don't know. And, like, there's this very long sequence towards the end of the film. It's only, like, a 90-minute film, but it, it felt like so it, it felt interminable. <laughs> there's a sequence in the, maybe in the Black Forest, in yeah. Ger- somewhere in Germany, in a, in, the, in a forest, and... And that just like went on and on and on and on. And this is supposed to be like the big kind of set piece of the film. Um, I, 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 you know, I just I wanted to like it. I like I like Kaylee Cuoco. I, you know, I think we've we've seen a number of these former hitman becomes a family man. You know, history of violence. The, the, what's it called? The family plan now right. with with Mark Wahlberg. It, it was nice. I like the idea of having a woman who's been an assassin. Why not? You know, but it just. I don't it just never it just never really reached it if it had any potential it didn't it, reach it. it never it never reaches it and, <laughs> yeah. yeah that's too yeah. bad role play starring Kaylee Cuoco David Oyelowo and Bill Nye Thomas Vincent directed it's rated R streaming on Amazon Prime Video Lift an action comedy that's streaming on Netflix stars Kevin Hart Gugu Mbatha-Raw and Ursula Corbero F. Gary Gray directed. Daniel Kunka is the screenwriter of the action comedy Lift. Lail. So about 20 years ago, uh, F. Gary Gray directed a movie called The Italian Job that mm-hmm. was, I think, pretty successful for the time. It made Minnie Coopers into a thing. It was like uh, full of gorgeous uh, cinematography of cities in Europe, and uh, it was about a heist, a group heist. With, it had quite a cast, too. I think Mark Wahlberg was in it, Jason Statham, um, maybe even Charlize Theron, Charlize, if I remember. Yeah. yeah. And um, it feels like this is sort of uh, an attempt to return to that uh, for, for F. Gary Gray, with, in this case, Kevin Hart, who is a um, plays a kind of a master swindler thief who who has a this gang of not really a gang a collection of people that he works with including Vincent D'Onofrio as a master of disguise there's a tech guy there's you know everybody has their different sort of skill sets and he the film opens with him s- stealing an NFT uh at an auction, if you can imagine that. Um, but uh, it, and then it sort of goes sort of weirdly askew and downhill from there. He is he's hired to to lift two, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars from a plane, not just from a plane in gold, but also the plane itself. It's it gets completely out of hand. It's it strains your credibility. Um, and it it uh, it's never quite as good. It's very slickly produced and it looks good. Kevin Hart gets a few good lines off, but I, I never really enjoyed it that much. We're talking about the action comedy Lift, Manuel. Yeah, this this to me um, feels like a kind of 
algorithm designed movie, right? It's mm-hmm. it's 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 made to sort of it sits alongside Italian Job and maybe Ocean's Eleven, though it's not as great as that film, uh, or something like Red Notice, the Ryan Reynolds, which is also about art thieves needing to mm-hmm. be turned, and now they have to work with Interpol. You know, in this case, they have to work with Interpol to sort of lift the gold. And of course, there's always a con behind the con, and who mm. can you trust? And mm. um, but it is so preposterous, and it is so. Um, everything feels really weightless. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of like CGI moments and, and weightless just not only because we're up in the air in this plane and there's always um, stuff happening, but uh, you never buy any of those relationships, especially there's a Kevin Hart um, who had an affair or like relationship with this Interpol agent that he now has to begrudgingly work with. And, you know, they kind of hate each other, but they, but love, they each love each other. And, yeah. it's, and you're just like rolling your eyes being like, oh, OK, we know where this is going to go. And it's all so by the book and it's so... Um, listless throughout that the the heist at the at the heart of the film just you never really care. I will say for me the one shiny moment it just, I just because I enjoy him every single time he's on screen is Billy Magnuson, who plays uh, the sort of himbo tech guy, uh, and he's just really funny. And you know he's been in sort of Game Night and he 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 plays lovingly buffoonish really really well even though he's a beautiful blonde you know really well built man but uh other than that i just kept thinking oh all these actors deserve so much better lift is the film that we're talking about kevin hart stars it's rated pg-13 and streaming on netflix self-reliance a comedic thriller stars jake johnson anna kendrick and andy samberg jake johnson is also the writer director of the hulu streaming movie manuel would you think of self-reliance so this is an amazing premise here's the premise uh, Jake Johnson plays the Satsack guy who's, you know, hasn't gone over a, a breakup. He lives with his mom. And one day, Andy Samberg in a limo pulls up to him and says, you are going to be part, you can be part of this um, dark web reality competition. All you have to do is survive. You have 30 days. There's hitmen all over the world. They're going to come hunting you. But if you survive for 30 days, you can do it. The catch is they can't kill you if you're near someone. So all you have to do is be near someone for the next 30 days and you get like a million dollars. This is a great premise because then you're like, okay, I'm going to spend this movie at the edge of my seat seeing whether this Jake Johnson character, this satsack of a character who's been lonely and, you know, alienating everyone around him, uh, will be able to convince someone to stay at close proximity with him for 30 days at every given hour. Um, And instead, it's this kind of like, improv comedy that never quite manages to be as thrilling as it wants to be. Um, he ends up meeting Anna Kendrick, who uh, tells him that she's also playing this game. Uh, is she and, playing herself too, like Sandberg is, or is she no? Playing she's playing. Character? She's playing this other um, this character. Sandberg is the only one playing himself, and he's having a great time, sort mm-hmm. of playing. <laughs> and it's just there's a lot of really funny people, and Jake Johnson is very talented. He he's really well suited to this, uh, you know, this kind of character. And Kendrick is, you know, lights up the screen whenever she's. She's on it, but ultimately, like, drags on. And part of me, I hate when movies make me an armchair producer because I'm like, well, what I, I would have done is <laughs> it, it should have been seven days or it should have been like it, it should have been tighter here. And I whenever a movie puts me in that space, I'm like, oh, it's it, I'm not really buying into it. I'm like mm. too much. And I, I just really wanted to be driven by this sort of really cool idea that he has 30 days to to, to survive to get all this money. And instead, we get random cameos by 
really funny people who then never get to do a lot of really fun things. I think that's got to be one of the real frustrating things as a critic. When you see a great premise squandered and, and you're watching, you have to review and you think this is because it's not it's not going to be done again for right. some yeah. time because it, it's been tried and failed at. It's it's agonizing, I, I, I think, because you, you just like especially when you see so much potential, you're like, God, this could have been good. Yeah. If only you just made some different decisions. Yeah. Well, this film is Self-Reliance, starring Jake Johnson, Anna Kendrick, and Andy Samberg playing himself. Johnson, the writer-director, it's rated R, and the comedy thriller is streaming on Hulu. The Book of Clarence is a comedic drama adventure film written and directed by James Samuel, Lakeith Stanfield, Omar, Omar C., uh, uh, Ana Jope, uh, star in it, along with David Oyelowo, who we had in another film earlier, James McAvoy in the cast. Manuel, what did you think of The Book of Clarence? Um, so Lael earlier talked about, you know, these movies have, that have sort of a kind of tonal whiplash or tonal sort of... Um, dysfunctionality. Dysfunctionality. And I think <laughs> The Book of Clarence is a perfect example. So we are in um, 33 um, A.D., and Jesus is about to be crucified. Um, so we're in biblical times. Or is this, this is a kind of biblical epic. But instead of following uh, Jesus and his apostles, we're following Clarence, who is the twin brother of Thomas. Uh, and Clarence is a, you know down on his luck. He's a thief. He's a scammer. Uh, he's friends with Mary Madeline. Um, and he wants to do better for himself because he's in a lot of debt and is also in love with a woman. Um, it's, it's actually kind of uncomfortable. Uh, the motivations are really unclear, but he decides that the way to get out of his out of his luck is to become an apostle, uh, or then maybe if that doesn't work, maybe become the Messiah, and maybe if he can con enough people to think that he's a new Messiah, he can get enough money, and then he can get the girl. Um, this sounds like the setup of a comedy or like a sketch, and there are hints of that. And Lakeith Stanfield is very talented and very comedically uh, gifted. Um, but eventually the movie becomes, it might as well be called The Passion of Clarence because um, mm-hmm. it becomes the kind of like biblical messianic epic wherein, you know, Jesus is on the side being a kind of superhero who can heal people and stop rocks like Neo in the Matrix. But Clarence is, you know, um, dying on the cross and actually going through a lot of the emotions of what we know of Jesus Christ's story. And it's a story about faith and faith versus belief and belief versus knowledge. Uh, and so it's it's actually quite ambitious, but tonally I just didn't understand what it wanted to be, whether it wanted to be like the sort of like modern biblical riff or it wanted to be sort of this like um, actual biblical epic that Hasse is wanting to believe in the in the in the Messiah, both Clarence, but also Jesus Christ. Um, Samuels, I will say, um, he has an eye and an ear, so this is very visually arresting. And he is a musician. In the music, there are moments when the movie almost begs to become a musical. And there is a great dancing sequence, and there are songs. Um, and I was just like, oh, you could have leaned in, again, the armchair producer in me. And I was like, no, this is... <laughs> But because th- there's so many talented people, James McAvoy gets to have a great time as uh, as one of the um, uh, Roman folk who's going to you know crucify any and all the messiahs. Um, but but yeah, I just 
It just didn't work for me. All right. We're talking about the film The Book of Clarence from writer-director James Samuel, starring Lakeith Stanfield. It's rated PG-13, and you can see it in select theaters. Just want to remind you, in case you just tuned in, it's not too late for you to hear the full hour of Film Week, including Lael's and Manuel's full reviews of all the movies this week. All you need to do is download the Film Week podcast wherever you get your audio, or you can listen to it at LAist.com. Coming up, I talk with the writer and director of the acclaimed film Past Lives. Celine Song will be with us when we come back in just 90 seconds on Film Week. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Ghost Waltz by Oliver Mayer, a bold original recovery of Juventino Rosas, one of Mexico's most significant composers. Follow Rosas from his father's early death to his friendship with ragtime genius Scott Joplin, now on stage through June 2nd. Tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Film Week on LAS 89.3. I'm Larry Mansell. Well, it's been nearly a year since the film Past Lives arrived at the Sundance Film Festival and was met by immediate audience and critical acclaim. The film was released in theaters around the middle of 2023 and has continued to garner fans of Celine Song's very intimate first feature film. She's a playwright, a screenwriter, and a director with past lives, and has an absolutely wonderful cast led by Greta Lee, Teo Yu, and John Magaro. We're so pleased to have with us Celine Song, writer and director of past lives. Thanks for joining us on Film Week. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. First of all, I just want to ask you about the whirlwind uh, that's been going on with Golden Globes and with all the different press appearances. For for a first-time director, this has to be quite a, a wild experience for you. Totally. I mean, I feel like there is just a there's a kind of a surreal nature to it all. And I think that, you know, this is what I could have just dreamed of, which is for this movie to uh, connect with people and then for, uh, you know, uh, it to sort of like keep living and keep living throughout the year that it's uh, being released. And I'm, I don't know, I'm just so happy. That's great. That's great. You're, you're, you haven't burned out on it and you're enjoying it. So let's talk about your personal experience, which led you to develop the screenplay for this movie. You yourself are Korean-Canadian, just like the protagonist in your film. Um, You had the experience of meeting someone who had been a childhood friend when you lived in South Korea, and you're married to a white man just like John McGarrow's character in this film. So how much of this is taken from your personal experience? Well, I think that it really was inspired by this one night uh, in East Village in New York City, where I found myself sitting between my childhood sweetheart, who had 
come to visit me from Korea, who's now a friend, and uh, my husband that I live with in New York City as a fellow New Yorker. And I was translating between these two people who care so much about me and in such different ways. And uh, I was translating between these two people in not just in language, but uh, in their in the culture and also, you know, history in my own history of my own identity of, you know, like I was talking to one part of my life and then speaking to, and translating what that is to the other person. And I think that felt so extraordinary to me, even though, of course, it looks like from anybody who's looking at us that the three of us are just ordinary people so it really was this really extraordinary moment in my life um that you know of an otherwise an ordinary life and i think that really uh was the inspiration for the whole film so it started really autobiographically one of the things that's so poignant to me about the film is it's not an explicitly romantic film. What I mean by that is it's played very naturalistically, and so you don't use music. You don't need lead have certain clues to sort of lead us to how we're supposed to feel about it. And that shows a real confidence in the audience, but also in your ability to convey the inherently romantic nature of the material without using those devices we're so used to seeing. Explore a bit with us how you felt, how you felt free to do that. Well, I think that there is a drama to and love in our own lives that I think that uh, it really all it needs is for uh, a beautiful point of view to be appointed in that direction. So I think that it was so much more about, well, how does this actually feel to us in our lives? Because there is romance in just living your life for many decades and across many continents, right? And I think that alone, just depicting that uh, accurately and, and authentically, I think I, I think I had a little bit of a trust in it. I think it does come from my background in theater, that like I have a lot more uh, belief in the audience's uh, patience, and the audience's willingness to sit in silence or to really take the moment to examine what's going on in their own lives. And I think it really is a leap of faith, too. Well, know? and in theater, you know, much of it is is driven, of course, by by the dialogue. In a film, you're relying on, on closer-up visual aspects, but you have a lot of time without people talking, too, where we're seeing their facial reactions, where they're... And so as, as you're taking your experience as a playwright and directing uh, stage productions to making your first feature film, what are the things that you you had to learn about that process? Well, I think that silence itself is a, a language of its own, too. So I think uh, so. a lot of the building blocks of what I know from my 10 years in theater uh, were then able to be applied directly to filmmaking. I realized that, you know, at the end of the day, uh, both uh, working in theater and working in film comes down to story, character, the sunrise and the sunset on the actors' faces and the way that the audience is going to connect with that. And I also know that the audience is unbelievably emotionally intelligent uh, when it comes to being able to sniff out uh, what feels true and what doesn't. Right. So I think that those are all the things that I knew from uh, my time as a dramatist generally uh, that I was able to bring to filmmaking. 
I think the things that were difficult is like you know how to read a call sheet. You know, there are some parts of filmmaking. <laughs> nuts and bolts. Yes, nuts and bolts. Managing a a film production. Exactly, and I think that part of it is about uh, you know uh, learning about who I am as a leader, who am I as a director, and who I am as somebody who can communicate the vision of the script that I wrote. And I think as a communicator, basically. And I think that those are things that like I learned about myself, and something that of course、uh, I couldn't have done without. Amazing collaborators surrounding me, making sure that、um, they're looking at all the blind spots that I obviously will have because as a first-time filmmaker.、Yeah. We're talking with Celine Song, who is the writer-director of Past Lives, a beautiful film that for nearly a year now has been getting plaudits for her script, for her direction, as well as for the acting in the film, which stars Greta Lee. Teo, you and John Magaro. Speaking of your relationship with your actors,、um, they have experience that you don't in terms of filmed productions. You und- undoubtedly, I'm assuming, as as a stage director and screenwriter, you rely on audience life response, and it helps you perhaps getting feedback and craft how you're how you're going to direct that production. With film, you don't have that immediate response,、mm. and you have these actors who bring in their experience working for other directors. Was that daunting at all for you? Were there were there things you had to work out in sort of how you directed the actors, given that dynamic? Well, I think that well, first of all, I feel like the crew is、uh, the first audience in that way. <laughs> so I think that you know the main thing that I was feeling so much is that like, well, that's how I was able to form such deep、uh, and intimate relationships with. With my actors, because it has to feel like、uh, they're not just showing up to play a part; they're actually going to、uh, fully embody and become a part of this film. Because that's what we have in the movie. The movie doesn't have、uh, CGI or costumes to help them. It really is just、uh, the way that they're going to go through uh, uh, extraordinary emotions and how that's going to、uh, connect to the audience. That's really the that's really the beginning and the end of it for the film. What are the ways that this is、uh, such personal story for you? You have such a vision of what you want it to be. How much direction did you give your actors to hit the tone that you were seeking? The degree to which they're say openly romantic or openly ro- emotional versus withheld? Well, I think sometimes down to、uh, like. Percentages and numbers. Like I feel like it is、wow. such a it is such a direct thing that we're also working together, starting from、uh, honestly for us、uh, from their auditions and then to rehearsal and then on set rehearsal and then to when we、uh, do our first take and we move on to the second take. I think it is a nonstop communication about what we're both pursuing. You know, if it's me and Greta, it's what we're both pursuing to find Nora. So it really is. Uh, going to end up being like a very technical thing, so it wasn't just a tone where we're like, well, let's feel it out. It's so much more about like we know what is going on in this scene, right? And then we're going to build a tone on、um, how she feels about that.、And、so when you say、feel? when you say percentages, you mean like. Pull that back ten percent. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like, well, yeah, I think you believe this, and you feel a little anger about it,、uh, and I think that's about twenty percent. You know, I、wow. think it's like it can be like that, but of course, I can't do that without、uh, actors who know、uh, that deeply. Who can read that person? What、exactly. that means? Well, they're they have such complete control of the instrument that is 
uh, their performance and their body and their face and their language. So without them have, being such expert performers of uh, their instrument, which is their um, their whole being, yeah, I don't think that it was going to be possible. But it you really are the orchestra is. conductor. Exactly. We'll yeah. continue with Celine Song, who is the screenwriter and director of Past Lives in theaters. Now we'll be back in just one minute on Film Week. It's Film Week on LA at 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us today. A reminder, in case you missed any of our critics' reviews earlier, you can listen to Film Week wherever you get your podcasts or at LAS.com. We're talking right now with the writer-director of Past Lives, film which tells the story of a Korean-Canadian woman who's come to New York City where she's had some success as a playwright. She has met and married at a writer's program retreat, uh, a white man who's also a writer. They live together in the East Village of New York. And at a couple periods in her life, the protagonist has had contact from the man who was a close friend of hers when she was a girl growing up in South Korea. They meet together a a decade after she and her family leaves and emigrate to Canada, and uh, that uh, conversation is conducted over Skype. Uh, He then goes on to his professional career as an engineer, and they meet up later in New York City. And, And there's really no plot to reveal here. It's all in the interactions between the characters and the power of those expressions. I want to say all your actors are strong, Celine, but Teo Yu... That's a very tough role for him to play as someone who clearly has this yearning to connect up with this girl that he had grown up with and that he misses and that connects to a feeling that he had in his boyhood. But uh, who also was a professional man and and is is not someone prone to big displays of emotions. I know he's a very experienced actor. He's done a lot of stage work as well. He's worked in international productions. What were the things that you told him about ways of so subtly expressing what's going on in this character's emotions? Well, I think that, you know, one of the bigger things that we talked about so much is that even though this is a romantic film and there is romance in it, it is not really a film about dating or flirting. It's a movie about love. It's a movie about love that sometimes does not have a clean name, right? It's not just as simple as, I think sometimes it's like marriage or boyfriend, girlfriend or something like that or partner. But I think there's some love where we can just feel that way about some people who just have come in and are out of our lives a few times. And you can feel love for them too. And you can feel love for a stranger who showed kindness or maybe you can feel love for somebody who you haven't talked to and 30 years. So I think it is so much about that ephemeral nature of love. So something that I knew that um, was really important for the character of Hesong is for him to not know that he is in a romance. So even though he is, of course, the uh, the center of the uh, the romance of this film, it was so important for my work with Teo. Um, and this is something that Teo and I were talking about all the time, about how f- from uh, Hesong's point of view, uh, he's not in a romantic film, right? He's actually just living his life, and he thinks that uh, he really uh, is going through 
uh, his experience feeling like, well, I don't know why, but I feel longing for this friend. Mm-hmm. I feel longing for this life. And I keep thinking about her. And maybe it's not such a simple thing of like, well, I want, her, I want her to be my girlfriend. But it's just a feeling of like, I don't know why, but I just think about her sometimes. I don't know if you've had a chance to see the film All of Us Strangers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did. Um, Andrew Scott was just in the star yeah. of that to talk about it. And your films are very different, but what both of them do is really set us to thinking about our past mm-hmm. and about experiences for those who haven't seen All of Us Strangers. He, he goes back to his childhood home, and there are his parents from when they died when he was just a, a boy, uh, 12 years old, I believe they were killed in a car. But they're there, alive, and he has all these conversations with them. Yours is about, you know, yours is very real. It's, it's not that sort of almost a ghost story. But it does get us to thinking about those relationships and the sense of, of our past. How does that, in, in your mind, sort of relate to the, to the present-day relationship that your protagonist has with her husband and the part of her that maybe he can't ever know? Well, I think that what you're talking about with the ghost story part of it, I think that is just true. And I think we experience the ghost story of it uh, in our everyday lives, too. And it's so uh, simple. It's just really more like, uh, you know, reconnecting with somebody who knew you when you were a kid and suddenly you feel like you're back to being that kid. And it's and it's like it's it's and I feel that way, for example, when I'm like back at home with my family and then I'm suddenly like, am I 16 again? Like complaining about laundry, you know, <laughs> like it's like it is such a special thing. But I think that to me, the two men in the film, what is really important to me about uh, their masculinity, too, and the way that they interact with each other is that it is so easy for the two of them to um be uh, be awful to each other or be angry with each other. But instead, what they're going to decide to uh, acknowledge and love about each other is that both men uh, ha- hold a key to this woman, the main character, Nora, that the other guy doesn't have. And only when both men are able to be there for her um, is she able to become whole. Only together can they unlock who she is. And... Um, it's easy for the two of them to, you know, try to fight each other for the other key or resent each other for having the other key to this woman. That would be a typical Hollywood approach. Exactly. The then it would be it would be a typical romantic romantic uh, triangle. But instead, what they're able to do is to look at each other and say, "Look, I'm so glad you're here because I just know that because you have the key to her that I myself don't have. Together, we can uh, make her happy. Together, she can be uh, whole and she can be full." I understand that you actually kept the actors separate until they came together filming the scene where they actually meet. And that clearly worked as intended. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, so the characters, uh, the two men, uh, Hesong and Arthur, uh, there, there were we. Uh, it was a amazing effort from our uh, AD department, and we kept these two actors apart. You know, timing their hair, makeup, and things like that until the scene where they see each other for the first time uh, in uh, Nora and Arthur's uh, apartment, and uh, we were rolling when the actors met and that shot is in the film because it was the uh, best take. And I think that us, because we don't have CGI or uh, costumes to really help them, um, but we also have to uh, explore extraordinary, very powerful and like uh, reality-breaking kind of emotions, I felt like doing that extra thing to help them uh, as we're rolling I just felt like it would be worth 
uh, at least trying. Mm-hmm. And I think that it was such an amazing thing because, for example, when they first saw each other for the first time, what they felt, both the jealousy and the feeling of uncertainty and uh, also a kind of love being like, man, that's the other person. You know, the feeling of like, huh, that's the other person who was really important to her. All of those feelings were then able to uh, permeate through the rest of their performance in that scene, but of course, the scene that came after, the bar, everything else. Because it's all proceeding in a similar time frame as it would in the real world. Exactly. Selena, I wanted to ask, because you you, you have the stage experience. You wrote the first season of the Wheel of Time series. You're on the right, so you had that experience in filmed entertainment. Um, is, is, so you feel like this movie directing thing is for you? You want you want to continue this? I assume. Yes, that's <laughs> all I want to do. Yeah, really? But, so you're yeah. ready? You're put aside um, plays for a while? Well, I think that you know the part of the the relationship that I the thing that I realized when I was making past lives is that the most powerful revelation in all of it is that I am a filmmaker. And it really felt like, I think I told my uh, husband after a few weeks of being on set, and I think I told him after I came home from set, I was like, you know, the truth is that I I think that I've met the love of my life. And I think that it is uh, making movies. And that I still feel that way. I think that that's all I want to do right now. And um, it was such a revelation for me as a person and and an artist. And I just learned that this is this is where I belong. This feels like home to me. It's great. I understand what that feeling is like. I I feel that way about my work. When you find it, there is just, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. And then, and it's, it is such a, uh, such a powerful thing and you're never going to be the same again. And past lives, just uh, uh, making past lives really changed my life in that way. Celine, thank you so much. A beautiful film. It, it's still hard for me to believe it's a first movie. Oh. You didn't even do a student <laughs> film. This is this is it. And uh, it's it's truly wonderful. Thank you for joining thank us. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. Thanks, Such I enjoyed it. Celine Song is the writer-director of Past Lives. Thank you so much for joining us for Film Week again. If you missed our critics' reviews, it's easy to hear the full hour of our program. Go to LAS.com or download the podcast and subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. From all of us, have a great weekend. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.